feel a little bit like a rubber band. Not shaky, but stretched. And you're either ready to get let loose <laughs> or break. And you're not sure which. I sympathize. <coughs> I'm there. I got a paper to hand in to Gail. Got some reading to finish. A few more classes to attend. Hang in there. Focus. One day at a time. One assignment at a time. One book at a time. One paper at a time. That's my mini-sermon. That's my pre-sermon. As Danny uh, reminded us, we're two weeks away from the end of this semester, the end of the school year. Uh, some are graduating from four-year degrees. Others uh, with one-year certificates never to return. That's a good thing. That's a great thing. You're out of here, some of you. Others, um, like myself, will be coming back. But I've got a summer ahead. As I was thinking of um, how to preach to you today, uh, what to encourage you with, I knew it needed to be hope-giving and directing your attention to God, giving you uh, passion, uh, even, for whatever lies ahead of you. So I'm going to give you a summary sermon of the first 36 chapters of Ezekiel. Hang on, hang on. Don't lose yourselves in your exuberant, joyful response. Let me tell you why the first 36 chapters are fitting for you and for me. Take heart. Christ died. But not for you. Open your Bible if you have it to Ezekiel. I will spend the majority of my time in chapter 36. I will give you an overview of chapters 1 to 35. From the first few verses of Ezekiel, we learn that it was written, um, spoken, the words were given to the prophet uh, during the time of the exile, right near the end of the kingdom of Judah. Since you all had your devotions in Second Chronicles this morning, you know <laughs> that Jehoiachin is the second to last king. It was during his fifth year of exile. If you want to do chronology work, I'll let you do that on your own time. Here Ezekiel is given words from God to the people of Judah in exile. There's visions of his glory. There's wings and wheels, God departing his glory from the temple. We start with an explanation of what he's to say and why. Son of man, go to the house of Israel. You don't have to follow along, just listen. Go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them, for you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel, nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech, but those who can understand your words. 
I have sent you to them who should listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be listening to you, since they are not willing to listen to me. Surely the house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. Go to them, to the exiles, and speak to them. Tell them whether they listen or not. Thus says the Lord God. Ezekiel breaks down very simply into three parts. Chapters 1 to 34 are judgment on Judah. Now this is a very simplistic explanation. 25 through 33 are judgment on Judah, or on the Gentiles, the nations around Judah, and the rest of the book is promised restoration of Israel. So we're going to be spending our time in the judgment section and kind of at the tipping point. After God um, calls Ezekiel as his prophet to go out to speak to these people who won't listen to him, he speaks of judgment over and over and over, and the phrase is repeated, thus they will know that I am the Lord. I'll read to you a few little pieces um, of this judgment. This Jerusalem I have set at the center of the nations with the lands around her, but she has rebelled against my ordinances more wickedly than the nations and against my statutes more than the lands which surround her. Therefore, says the Lord God, because you have more turmoil than the nations, because you don't observe my statutes or my ordinances, I will execute judgments among you in the sight of the nations. Because of your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done and the like of which I will never do again. The fathers will eat their sons, the sons will eat their fathers, for I will execute judgments on you and scatter all of your remnant to every wind. So as I live, declares the Lord, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary and all your detestable idols with which your abominations, with your abominations, therefore I will also withdraw and my eye will have no pity and I will not spare. One third of you will die by the plague or be consumed by famine among you. One third will fall by the sword around you, and one third will be scattered to every wind, and I will unsheath the sword behind them. There's a summary. Things that were uh, spoken in there are repeated over and over in these first 24 chapters. Judgment, death, exile, famine, sword. The slain will fall among you, and you will know that I am the Lord. And they will know that I am the Lord, for my eye will have no pity on you, nor will I spare you, but I will bring your ways upon you, and your abominations will be among you, and then you will know that I am the Lord. My eye will not show pity on you, I will repay you according to your ways, then you will know that I am the Lord. Over and over and over. I tried to count them quickly. My best guess was at least 15 times that promise of judgment with the with the purpose of, you will know that I am the Lord, is repeated. So this happens. Um, chapter 10, he gives a vision. The glory of God departs from the temple. Unbelievable. What's going on? He condemns the elders who were leading poorly in chapter 14. And then in 16, he gives an explanation of uh, his work in the life of Judah, in the, in the kingdom, the people of Judah, his chosen people. 
I'll try to summarize it this way. You can read chapter 16 on your own if you want to. Here you were, a baby, squirming in the blood with no one to care for you. When I passed by you, I saw you, and I said, live. Yes, live. And I made you numerous, like plants of the field, and you grew and became tall. You reached the age of fine ornaments. I passed by you, saw you, I made you my own, declares the Lord. Bathed you with water, washed off your blood, anointed you with oil, gave you linen, coverings, and ornaments, gold and silver, fragrance. But what did you do? You trusted in your own beauty, and you played the harlot because of your famine, because of your fame, sorry. You poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. He critiques their harlotry. How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord. While you do all these things, the actions of the bold-faced harlot, when you built your shrine at the beginning of every street and made your high places in every square, in disdaining money, you were not like a harlot. You adulterous wife who makes strangers, who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all harlots, but you give your gifts to lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction for your harlotries. Thus you are different from those women in your harlotries, in that no one plays the harlot as you do. Because you give money and no money is given to you, thus you are different. God's chosen people paying to give themselves away, to worship detestable idols, images, forsaking the God who chose them. This is the character, this is the, not character, this is the feeling of these first chapters of judgment. They're heavy. Then from chapters 25 through 30, there's a shift. God commands Ezekiel to pronounce judgment on the Gentiles. I don't, I'm not going to even really read through that. Uh, but he, in a very uh, systematic if I can say that, sequence. He goes through each of the surrounding nations that um, attacked uh, his people Israel, and he, he critiques their attitude. They said, ha, look at this. Look at these chosen people of Israel. They're destitute. They're given up. They've left their God. Then we come to chapter 35. We're getting close to my text. Okay, bear with me. God pronounces judgment on all of these nations. They will become desolate. He will do to them what they did to Judah. And the phrase that's repeated should not be a surprise. In every occurrence of judgment on every nation in these chapters, that they will know that I am the Lord. There again, I, I, tr I quickly tried to count them probably 15 occurrences in those six chapters. Sensing a theme yet, that you will know that I am the Lord. Chapter 36, the tone of the book tips. We go from judgment to restoration. God promises on the 
land of Israel in the first 12 verses, that the people will re-inhabit them, it will become prosperous. Uh, and then I'm going to start reading in verse 16, if you care to follow along. Chapter 36, verse 16. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them, for the blood which they had shed on the land, because they had defiled it with their idols. Also I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name, because it was said, These are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord. There it is, the holiness of the name of God. This is my focal point. This is my emphasis. We see God's action in judgment, and it's right. He's just. Go back to Deuteronomy 6, 8, 7, 8, 9. There's promised blessing if there's obedience. If you worship me, if you follow my statutes, I will bless you. But if you do not worship me, if you do not follow me, I will pronounce judgment on you. I will judge you. So his judgment is right. <coughs> In a sense, we see here God explaining his mercy. Let's keep reading. Verse 20, uh, yeah, verse 24. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land, and then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so that you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the grain and multiply it. I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. You will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I, do, I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus the Lord God, on the day that I clean, cleanse you from all your iniquities, 
I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes. They will say, this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. Here we see the character of a holy God working mercifully with his chosen people who have rejected him. He has every right, he's just, to pronounce the judgment that he has on them. And here he promises restoration. So what does it have to do with you and me? I'm not Judah. I'm Norwegian. <laughs> Nor am I in exile. Here we see the character of God displayed in one chapter, well, 36. But it's not only here, we see it through the rest of Scripture. For us as Gentiles, how does the character of God, how does this come through? What, what does it mean? Let's turn to Ephesians 1. I go here because I don't want to tell you, nor do I want to let you think that I'm saying we should insert ourselves into Ezekiel 36. I don't think that would be proper. But God's character is consistent. He is a holy God. And he acts not for your sake, not for my sake, but for his holy name. That is a hopeful thing, beloved. Take heart. Christ died, not for you. I'm going to read verses 3 through 14 of the first chapter of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us and the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end 
that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. What phrase is repeated three times? To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glory. What I'm arguing is that God's character is consistent. He works for the sake of his name with Israel and with us. Christ on the cross is an unbelievable demonstration of God working for his own glory. And if I might sound a little piperish, our greatest good. Through a totally undeserved, that is really terrible grammar, totally undeserved act of mercy, that contradicts itself. He welcomes us into a relationship of worship. He allows us, by the atonement of our sin, to worship him. We don't deserve that. We do not deserve that. To the degree that he had every right to just crush his chosen people, he chose not to, for the sake of his own name. He promised restoration. Practically, what does it look like? All right, I'm tracking with you, Andrew. God worked with Israel for the sake of his own name. I think I buy that the cross is for the glory of God. What does it change when I leave for the summer? When I leave forever from NBC, what does it change? Wish I could give you things that are easy, some practical steps, perhaps. I think the first thing that has to change is my heart. Do I walk humbly before God? Do I truly rejoice in the reality that He works for His own name's sake? Maybe, practical application, when I'm standing here, singing these words. What do I have in view? What I have benefited? Or the character of the one who acts mercifully toward me? Which is more important? What I get or who he is? I think no, I know that when the reality sinks in that God works for his own glory and not my worthiness, that's a good thing. Because if you know what you deserve, if we know what we deserve, then his working through the gospel for his own glory and our good is amazing. And you should take heart.
I hope that when you leave the Bible college, you've spent many time, many times. <laughs> I need more time here. Much time in scripture. You've read a lot, you've written some, some better than others. I hope that you walk away marveling the glory of God, marveling at his mercy and truly taking hope that that's why he acts. He brings us into it. May that change the way you interact with unbelievers, believers. Rather, that changes how you teach scripture, how you disciple one another and others. That you elevate the glory of God rightly understanding who he is and how he acts mercifully toward you. I'm going to pray for you. God, I am truly thankful. That is a pitiful word. Truly thankful that you reveal your character through scripture and most fully through Christ on the cross. I thank you that your character is full. You are not just just, you are merciful. I ask for the people in this room, I ask for my own heart, uh, that as the semester ends and we leave this place, that we would marvel at your glory, that we would take hope in the reality that Christ died, but ultimately not for us. Help us to make much of your glory and to <coughs> worship you as you deserve. Amen.